0: Welcome back to Open Source Startup Podcast. Of course, this is Tim from Essence VC and our lovely partner from Cowboy, Robbie. And we're super excited to have GrowthBook, Graham and Jeremy here to talk about the open source feature flagging and A-B testing platforms.
1: Welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Happy to be here. Super excited to be on your podcast.
2: Amazing. So why don't we go back to the early journey of GrowthBook and where the idea came from for both of you?
1: Yeah. So GrowthBook started from our experience at our previous company where I was the CTO and Jeremy was the chief architect and we worked together for like 9 years there and when we started like the way the product development was done was basically based on gut instinct of like we think we should build this and then you build it and then if you're you're lucky if they had any kind of measuring or success criteria to if the product actually did what it was supposed to do and you wouldn't if you did measure the impact it would often be like usage which doesn't necessarily tell you if you're like cannibalizing any other parts of your product. So we kind of looked to A-B testing, which historically had started out as like a marketing product and thought we could use that to basically bake it into our development process. And we know that bigger companies do this, right? Like your Netflix and LinkedIn's and all like test everything they ship, but we were a much smaller company, but, you know, and the tools that we had available were just not in reach. So we already had a data warehouse tracking event data. And we figured like, well, let's just build an A-B testing platform based on this data that we're already tracking. And there were no products that did that. So we built our ourselves figuring like, well, how hard, how hard could this be? Uh, turns out that's actually quite hard to do. It um, probably took us like two years to build an internal platform. And then it's also like very high risk because you're making decisions about what products to build and which ones not to build. And if you have a mistake in your statistics or some implementation error, you can end up going like entirely down the wrong path. So yeah, so after leaving this company we we kind of thought about that problem we started talking to a lot of other companies who had built these platforms in-house and realized that like we think we can build a platform that does all the hard parts of an experimentation like this an experimentation platform like this but allows you to abstract out the the difficult data side that like makes every system slightly unique and so that that was the goal with GrowthBook is to be the uh, the custom in-house experimentation and feature flagging platform that you don't that you don't have to build it <laughs>
2: And maybe, Jeremy, it would be great to get your background, too, and if your experience was the same as Graham's and you kind of, like, also wanted to start the company for the same reason.
3: Yeah, so Graham and I worked really closely together at last company, and, yeah, I was sort of the one that built the first experimentation platform there. I've also been heavily involved in open source throughout the years. I've got a number of sort of personal projects get pretty popular, and, yeah, so when the opportunity came up to do a new company using open source and A-B testing, it was, yeah. Really awesome opportunity.
0: And so, yeah, I saw you uh, celebrate your 3,000 GitHub stars in May and things like things are just growing. So definitely, I think we'll love to talk about how you grew your open source project from day one. Because I think this space yeah. is not where, like, there's tons and tons of open source projects. Actually, no. There's actually very little, right? There's actually no. not yeah. many people even aware of... A, B testing fully what it means and what it looks like. So we talk about like in early days, what you're trying to say and how do you grow the first maybe like 100 to 200 people? Or yeah,
1: certainly. So we actually started as a closed source product. And strangely enough, like we, we built an MVP probably in about six months and we had our first sales call and the first sales call, like they bought it immediately. And we were like, this is this is easy, like it was, <laughs> uh, but that then it turned out like way harder, and you know, obviously, a lot of other calls like didn't go as well, and we realized that if we were just going to go head to head with sales at company from companies like LaunchDarkly, like we're just going to lose because uh, they're much much bigger than us. So, open source was an interesting decision to make. There were a lot of factors that went into it. A lot of them you've talked about on the show at length, like the ability to immediately get in front of a lot of users. But for us, like we didn't. Yeah, it it was kind of an interesting decision because, as you say, the A/B testing open source A/B testing space had been entirely abandoned. It was full of quite a few companies that have like spun off their home built products, but they don't really adapt well to the generic cases, and if unless you build it like that from scratch, so basically they just didn't really work. Everyone you, know, you look at the issues, everyone's just like, how do I make this work for this case? And everyone's like, I I don't know. Um, so it was just it was like this empty space that that we thought we could really excel in. And so, yes, we launched it in May of 2021 and we did uh, our first hacker news post and nothing happened at all, like crickets. And and so that was very demoralizing. I think I remember uh, one day, I think it was like a Wednesday, we just reached 100 stars and it was like ticking up, you know, like two or three a week. Um, We were like, well, okay, that's not great. Uh, (laughs) And then we got to 100 stars and we sent Slack messages to each other like, hey, congratulations, Jeremy. And. Uh, you're like, yeah, it was starting to happen. And then we, I think Jeremy went on vacation. I went hiking and we'd start getting my phone just started like blowing up on the way to the Sierras. And I was like, what's going on? And so it turns out someone had posted our product to Hacker News, basically word for word, like exactly what we had posted. But this time it just like took off entirely. And like by the end of the day, I think we had like 600 stars and yeah, and just kind of a rocket ship, or at least in terms of adoption and growth since then. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a good degree of luck involved, at least initially.
2: I love that you talk about just the the almost like unplanned nature, because I think that happens a lot of open source projects that they just take off. And it's really hard to know exactly how or why. A lot of times it's a post, but it's a lot of times not the planned one. I'd love for maybe both of you to talk through what happened after that. So all of a sudden you have all this traffic do you have at that point a Slack community set up and it's really just, okay, let's go in there and start trying to get to know who the users are and see if we can start interacting with them, figure out what companies they're at. Like what was your kind of next step after things started to like really pick up and like the open source piece?
3: Yeah. I don't remember if we had the Slack community yet or we like quickly put one up, but yeah, I think it came shortly afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely trying to grow people there and make it not seem like an empty place with only five people on it. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, it was really just staying on top of GitHub issues. And we started getting a few early adopters. The nature of an experimentation platform, it takes quite a bit of time to actually integrate and get it into production. So the lead time from someone trying us out to actually using us in production could be a month or two. And so it took a while to actually get those production users finding real bugs and issues, but it was a lot of helping people onboard and get started. And it's we really focused, a lot of our effort.
1: Yeah, we, we've been bootstrapping the product until then. And so the... our growth, particularly growth in stars and all that was was really great in getting us to the next level in terms of getting into YC and getting venture funding. So that was very helpful. But I think the other thing we did because of the open source nature, it allowed us to like get really close to our users. So we were creating like shared Slack channels with a lot of our users and like just in there every day listening to their needs. And they would come up with a bug and we would just jump on it and fix it like in an hour or something. And they were always like, you know, kind of amazed that we could do that. And So yeah, so we were using like our size and our our flexibility to our advantage in the early part, which was very helpful.
0: So I love to kind of hear how you decide to iterate on your features. Because I think A-B testing, part of the, the challenge is you're not just talking about what data to get in, right? It also matters like what is the statistical things you're doing on top of the data? How are you setting up these experiments? And there's, I know what, this is quite nuanced of everybody has different understanding What even the right approach, right data, and all of that whole process is—I realize nobody just knows standard processes for it. Yeah. So I imagine it might be hard to actually know, like, okay, are we going to spend more time getting a lot more data sources in? We're going to spend a lot more time supporting that particular way they want to do experimentation or that statistical model with a little nuances left and right. Right. This is the the pros and cons of doing open source where everybody gets come here right. and just explain their problem doesn't work, right? And now you have to figure out how, how to deal with it. How did you go about this? And what did you learn in the process of doing it too?
1: Yeah, so we definitely have a pretty good process where when someone comes up with an issue, we try to evaluate how generic this is. Like, can it apply to multiple cases? We do have a lot of companies come to us and say, like, we want to like, basically bias the sample size in a particular way. And we're just like, that's that's kind of wrong. Like, you probably shouldn't do that. So we won't build some of that that stuff in, we'll try to help them understand why that's not necessarily ideal. But yeah, I think, you know, we've, I don't know what we're up to now, like something like 13 data connectors to different data sources, nine SDKs, and 15 event trackers. So yeah, it was was very hard to build all that, but it was based on listening to our users and and what what they wanted.
3: Yeah, we had a couple of false starts in there. Like, we Originally, we focused a lot on Google Analytics because every site had that installed. And then, yeah, we realized they're kind of really limited in what you can do with that. So that, that kind of fell to the wayside and we put our effort towards other types of data connectors. And yes, yeah, a lot of trial and error just listening to our users.
1: Yeah. And we'd, we'd have experience running A-B testing teams for many years. And so we kind of understood where the common failure modes are. And we tried to build them into our product. So uh, we actually talked to a lot of data scientists who are very happy with some of the features we built, like the ability to hide statistics until you reach a certain level, like because oftentimes product managers want to peek at things. And there's a lot of like bad practices that we try to bake into our platform to, to help people avoid.
2: And I'd love to double-click on who a GrowthBook user is because the user of an A-B testing platform can be like on the data science team, developers, product teams. And so when you think about who, who is currently, but also who you want to be, kind of the representative GrowthBook community member, like who, who is that persona?
1: Yeah, I mean, we built GrowthBook to be the platform we wish we had. And that's mainly engineering focused. So we've spent a long time on like the developer experience. The SDKs are really nice, lightweight. We're not in the critical rendering path. So you don't have to worry about performance issues with loading us. But as you say, the A B testing platforms are used by those three personas. And we can't avoid, We can't just build a platform for engineers because it's got to be used by product managers, it's got to be trusted by data scientists. So unfortunately, we had not been able to like pick a one side of that. We have to support all of them. And I think Yeah, particularly the engineering and data science side have been rather neglected in the experimentation space, particularly a lot of the platforms are built more for marketers.
0: Yeah, I noticed like your earliest content is actually explaining what experimentation is (laughs) and moving towards more about specific integrations and and so did you try to start with people that doesn't know experimentation as their first level users, which I, thought, I imagine will actually much harder. And there's also a trade-off in focusing on people who already been doing experimentation, but most like already done a platform or built something in-house, right? Which was the first, I guess, your target initially ideal customers are going after, and did you expand
3: from them?
1: Yeah, our original goal was to start with smaller companies, help them adopt a feature flagging system first, then when they get the traffic, help them do experimentation on top of that to really you know, to get that iterative cycle going where they can really improve their product. What we noticed, like basically as soon as we open sourced it, we didn't really expect this, but we suddenly got like large enterprises interested in this because they know the pain of building it. And so that's why a lot of that content was early focused on that small companies. And then we were like shifted to like much larger, you're right. Trying to convince people to do testing is really hard, right? Unless they, unless they come to that epiphany themselves about how important it is to test, it's really hard to convince them that that, I mean, I was the same way, right? Like you, you just don't see it until you're, you're on the other side of that decision. You, and you, then you realize like, oh my God, I, I've been guessing all this time, right? And yeah, so I think we did start adapting to the more enterprise clients now. And we do serve people up and down, you know, all, all different sizes of companies.
2: And so in a lot of your company messaging, you talk about it being like the number one open source AB testing product. And so I'm wondering what your iterations have been on just positioning, because there are other companies targeting different personas, targeting different use cases, some that aren't open source. So what have you learned about trying to figure out how to fit into that landscape? Like what's worked? Where did your messaging start versus where it is today? (laughs) I
1: I wish we had done more iteration on that. We're, We're... Yeah, the messaging we have now is probably like the third or fourth iteration of that. What we've noticed is that the decision to build versus buy an experimentation platform is a pretty hefty decision. People are not usually jumping in just because they saw a link and then like adopting it 100%. So that conversation takes longer. And as long as we're included in that conversation, we stack up really, really well. So most of it's about awareness, like just driving awareness to our product, making sure that we're included in the conversation. And currently our inbound leads are like, overwhelming. Um, so yeah, it's, it's obviously doing something. I, I think we would probably tweak that messaging on our website a little bit more, maybe show some more use cases, but we, we frankly haven't had much time to spend on, on the marketing side.
0: So I think you were talking about like growing your community from the earliest days and it sounds like the open source message, you know, through Hacker News grew to a fairly significant size. And Typically, you also need to sustain that momentum. You also need to build, like, either a lot more features or do a lot more content. What was the biggest challenge for you to continue the growth? Was it just a sea of opinions of what people want? Was it actually trying to juggle between, like, large enterprises start asking you a lot more large enterprise things? Like, probably they're all not easy. But what are, like, the biggest challenges you have to overcome during this period of trying to figure out the early products, you know? Prioritization.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that's like the can the the feature they're asking for be applied generically, or is it even the right question? Maybe there's a way to solve it slightly differently that can apply more generally, or that we can we can solve even more quickly. I think that's one of Jeremy's strengths is he has like this remarkable brain that just like can look at a problem like that and and build it you know in a week or something and sustaining that momentum. We try to release monthly. Um, when we're shipping new features every day, we haven't always been great about announcing that to like the right channels. I think that's something we could improve on. But we, we've noticed that like companies, you think like maybe you talked to them once and they went away, and we're like, oh damn, that that sucks. They they went gone somewhere else. And then you you release a new feature, and suddenly they're back because they're like, oh, that we were waiting for that. And so it's been really cool. And I think one of the lessons I've learned is like not to stress too much. Like if a company doesn't end up going with you, like it's all right, and they might even
3: be back. It's, we're kind of unique in that we're mostly competing with home-built systems. So the alternative to using us is building it themselves, which is a lot of work. And so they're even willing to use us for half of the things just so they can build a little bit less. So our users tend to be pretty forgiving if they can't do one particular thing because they could do it manually and they'd have to anyway if we didn't exist.
1: Yeah, we spent a long time on trying to optimize the onboarding flow and like minimize the time to value. So you can install GrowthBook as a Docker image in basically one line, get up and running, and you know, for an open source project, I know that a lot historically, like they've been typically difficult to use. And we're trying to like really break that, like make it just a delight to use and like get so people can just test like spin it up and test it out. They can even run it on past experiments. Like if you've already run an experiment on your data warehouse, you can run it through us historically, like look at the past test and see how it would have performed. So just trying to like lower all the barriers we possibly can to get started.
2: I feel like we've talked to a lot of different companies where it ends up getting kind of like tricky to go from having users who are interested in your project, then getting them to start using it and then getting them engaged. It's like, even though it is a different funnel, being an open source company or product, just getting folks engaged. Part of that is having SLAs and how you're going to respond to them in Slack and just setting expectations. But what other things have you learned to not just drive excitement and engagement on the product, which or on the project, which we talked about earlier, but having like really fast setup time, but then making sure that users are constantly engaged. Like, are you looking for them using you daily, weekly, like what are kind of your signals that, okay, like this is someone who could potentially turn into a, a paid user at some point?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we provide a lot of support on our Slack channel. If, you know, for the more enterprise customers, we'll set up those shared Slack channels. And then for our internal metrics, we really look at like production deployments is what's important. And then like weekly active users, like are people using it pretty much weekly is sort of, I think the right time frame to look at for experimentation. Yeah. So that that's, that's what we look for.
3: Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with open source is the limited telemetry data. So it's yeah, kind of doing the best we can with the data we have. And yes, yeah, so it's pretty easy to see just general activity. We don't always know who those people are, so we can't reach out to them. But yeah, it's good to see sort of general trends there.
0: So I think understanding the experimentation and when I notice what everybody is doing is there's like tons and tons of spreadsheets, basically. You know, <laughs> everybody's using spreadsheets. And they all look a little bit different. There are statistical things, there are data going in there, but they do look different. Like, how do you design a product where basically everyone's spreadsheet looks different? I imagine definitely the data sources coming in helping set up the experiment. There's certain steps that are more defined, but there's going to be a lot of choices now. Like, okay, everyone's looking a little different now. Do you allow people to export back to your spreadsheets, or do you try to have? more flexibility than most other products. I just, I wonder what is the philosophy and how have you tested what is the right way we should build a product around something that is so homegrown by nature?
1: Yeah, I, that's definitely the, one of the root problems we're trying to solve with GrowthBook is like, how can we adapt to all these different use cases? Uh, part of that is we provide radical transparency to everything we show. So we have like the ability to view the SQL of every single query that we produce every day piece of data on the platform. You can even export the entire thing as a Jupyter notebook. So our goal is to like solve the 99% cases. And then if you have some specific thing or maybe some advanced team that wants to dig into the data in another way, they can export the data and and do that. Or they can, you know, the Jupyter notebook comes with our statistics package like baked right in so they can continue to dig in there. In terms of like the the documentation piece and like all those, as you say, the spreadsheets with the different columns, we provide like markdown for documenting everything that, that happens. You can upload screenshots, and we even have a project launching pretty soon, which is the ability to do customized experiment fields. So you can just like customize what fields do the PMs or whomever is launching the experiment need to fill it out. So we do adapt really well to custom experiments, and uh, we are also working on API to allow you to pull data out. So it's not we don't want it to be a you know a lock in, so you can export everything out to whatever you need,
3: Confluence or yeah. whatnot. And like you mentioned, like the status quo, a lot of companies are spreadsheets which are just really bad for experimentation. It doesn't take that much to kind of beat that experience. I think once someone realizes how much better it could be to have a dedicated you know, web interface around this, yeah, we don't see people looking back that often.
1: One of the issues we see is like companies that run experimentations a lot will end up in six months or a year later with these like weird conversations. And they almost, almost verbatim happen like this, where you're like, didn't, like, we should test feature X. And you're like, didn't we test that? And then you're like, Searching through spreadsheets and Google Docs and emails and Jira tickets and like, it's, it's a mess, right? And so our goal is to, is to help be that like source of truth for everything you've done on an experimentation platform.
2: Yeah, it's super interesting. Whenever you're creating a new category in a sense, or at least a new kind of persona profile for functionality that's existed for others. It's hard to actually just like set those guardrails around what the product will be and like what it won't be and who it won't service. How have you, other than content, and maybe you can talk a bit about your content strategy, but how have you gone about educating users and making sure they're really like engaged with your product and using it the right way and like not running into maybe a case where it won't work well and, and, and like just making sure that they're successful? What are some learnings there?
1: Yeah, definitely. So one of the things we did quite well early on was create some content specifically targeted at certain use cases. Like, you know, I remember when Next 12 launched and they had a new middleware, that worked really well for experimentation. We wrote some articles like this is how you use middleware for A/B testing, and that worked really well. It brought in the right audience too, like cuz they were, we, you know, we worked really well with that tech stack, so that was a great fit. We do have quite a lot of times where we'll meet with companies and they'll talk about their use case and and we'll just tell them like this isn't the right fit for you, but like here are some other products we think would be really good for you. One, that helps build trust like long-term with us. And two, if you just force someone into a use case that they're not happy with, like they're not going to like your product. Like you're not going to like supporting them. And it's it's just better just to, uh, yeah, to to kind of realize when that's not going to fit.
0: So I see you have a managed cloud product. So let's talk about like, what is the philosophy when it comes to users getting to learn GrowthBook, and how do you see users translating that into using your your managed products? Is the funnel more, hey, let's try out GrowthBook through Docker Compose, deploy yourself, and you now get to a point where I want either a more productionized, you know, more hardened versions, or do you have some open core or maybe plugins or particular features that's only available in managed cloud? Like, how do you think about that funnel or journey?
1: Like. We actually see a lot of people try out the Docker container and then migrate to the cloud, which I think is a, is a direction we weren't really expecting. We kind of thought that once you put it in production, you might want to have that on your own on-prem. But I think people these days are more and more willing to trust cloud providers, and particularly the way we've architected. We don't touch any PII, so you know the risks are very, very low. Yeah, and then unlike how we structured the, the product, we are open core, but we are agnostic in terms of how you host it. So the same set of features and the same licenses are available on the cloud versus on prem, yeah, it's it's the same product pretty much.
2: And how did you come up with your price points? I know that's always something that founders early on are iterating on. Like, did you look at other feature flagging products or experimentation products and say, okay, like this is the baseline, but since we're kind of going after a new persona, it, it could be a little bit different. Like, what did you try, and what what's been, I guess, hard, or what have you learned about that process?
1: Yeah, it definitely is hard. I think coming from an experimentation background, we were willing to test. Different things and be flexible with that, and try things out and see how people respond to it. One of the the issues we really wanted to combat was like in our industry there was a lot of opaqueness. Like people had no idea how much it would actually cost to run a program because they're usually based on like event traffics or you know monthly tracked users and all these things. And that just people got really frustrated. So one of the the things we really wanted to tackle was just being really transparent with our pricing. So we base it based on seats. And yeah, it's just it's pretty simple pricing. We have explored a couple different levels of pricing, different levels of like free trials and whatnot. And I think we're still still iterating there.
0: So something on your pricing actually piques my interest quite a bit. There's a fair use policy of talking about how we are support quite a large number of requests but if you try to do more than that we have the rights I guess to <laughs> to do certain things like like talk about that because I don't actually see that that often that early actually uh, of a policy around your free plan where did it come from and how do you decide that wording as well
3: uh, Jeremy I think you, you spearheaded that one yeah so basically the way we architected our product we don't want to be in that critical rendering path so when your apps loading we don't want us to be a third-party dependency that needs to be up and there for your website to load it's just it's better for the users to have all that data locally. So we kind of architectured ourselves out of the equation most of the time. And we provide that CDN as a really quick way to get started. And for some users, they do use that in production at scale. Um, but to kind of encourage the practice of caching and doing that, we put that fair use in there. So if someone's going to be using us with 100 million requests a month, they probably should be caching on their infrastructure. And that's kind of the right way to, to use the product at scale. Our CDN can handle it, but it's more just pushing them in the right direction and the right way to use the product.
2: And I guess now, how are you balancing trying to drive some of your open source users to your like paid, whether it's cloud or on prem product, versus just growing the community? Because especially after like raising venture capital and like thinking through priorities, both are going towards growing the company, but it's like slightly different focuses. Like, do you have? folks in your team who are building products for the cloud product versus some that are focused on open source? Is everyone doing everything? And are you trying to just kind of grow both at the same time? Or are there certain priorities now that you have a paid product that have changed?
1: Yeah, we definitely roadmapped out what features we want and at which tiers the features will be released on based roughly on like some research we or. Looking at like some of the successful companies like GitLab, and so we've identified different like use cases for each of the tiers, and then we build for that. In terms of like prioritization, it's really based on like use first and foremost like customer need. That's sort of we want to make everyone like really happy, and that's that's the first part. And then yeah, we do we are working on more monetization stuff. The monetization efforts we have right now are pretty new within I don't know, the last two or three months, basically. So we're still kind of
3: figuring that out, that right balance. Yeah, I'd say most of our engineering effort is still just on the core platform and not specifically paid features.
0: And so, yeah, I noticed adding feature flagging more recently, right? So now you're getting into more on the product side rather than just gathering the data and doing experimentations. And obviously there's actually, like you said, there's there's larger companies and people that have been doing this for a longer time. So there's probably endless work on experimentation side and there's endless work on the feature flagging, (laughs) right? And so... You know, we're just adding a lot more fun and a complexity <laughs> into this navigation space. How do you know what to add or what to focus on? Now we are trying to expand the reach more. Is it just to be doing enough and then also trying to integrate with other feature flags? Or how do you think about when it comes to users making yeah. some level of choice here?
1: Yeah, we didn't want to be all things for all people. So we definitely made the choice very carefully to go into feature flags. And I think we're pretty happy with the state of our product right now uh, for the moment. It is difficult to kind of decide where that line is.
3: Yeah. I mean, we're definitely big fans of doing like the bare minimum MVP and then iterating. So like the first version of feature flags we had was kind of useless unless you had like a very, very specific use case. And up until like even a couple of weeks ago, you couldn't give someone a permission to publish things in dev but not production. And like we just added that recently and it was live for good nine or 10 months without that that I think a lot of people would kind of consider a core part of a feature flagging platform. But even missing that, we still got quite a few users who just wanted something simple to get started and use with experimentation. And yeah, we're kind of starting to become really competitive with those bigger platforms.
1: Yeah, I think one of our successes has been the modularity of the platform. Like you can use feature flags without experimentation and it works fine. And you can use experimentation without feature flags and it works fine. But they work really well together. Like that's, that's where things really start clicking but not having like limits on how you use it has been really great for allowing adoption at kind of at all different levels. So we have a lot of times where we'll be in one company in the experimentation team just to automate some reporting. And then they'll, you know, they'll realize their homegrown feature flagging system could use an overhaul. And they're like, well, we're already using this. Like it ties in really nicely. If we, we just went all of it and then we kind of expanded to the company completely.
2: Awesome. Um, So I wanted to expand out a bit and maybe ask, because over the last couple of years, you've done a ton on product, trying to evangelize, trying to, like you came out with a paid product pretty, I think, early versus a lot of other open source companies, which is super commendable with how much you're balancing. What if, I'd love to get both of your thoughts on this. What has been maybe one or two of the hardest decisions that you've had to make or just like biggest kind of like Okay, like, do we launch paid now? Do we wait? Like, what are maybe some of the things that have been pretty pivotal for the company that now, looking back over the last two years, were, were just really tough decisions, but ones that like you had to make. It was really important for the company.
3: One of the earliest big decisions we had to make was the whether or not to open source. Yeah, so that was a we weren't getting a ton of traction as a kind of closed source SaaS product. Yeah, I had a background in open source, and yeah, we were kind of trying to figure out if this was a one or two way door and it kind of seemed pretty scary that like, okay, once you open source, if it doesn't work out, there's no way to go back. But since we were so small and had no traction, like either the open source product would take off or it wouldn't, and no one will be using us. So they wouldn't care if we go back to closed source. So a lot of those things that kind of seem like you can't go back once you make this decision, once we thought deeply about it, realized that really wasn't the case and we should just do it and see what happens.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the other really hard decisions was to take VC money because you know, it's a whole different game once you do that. And you're also, you know, you've been working on this for a year, two years, whatever it is. And now you're selling part of your baby, right? And and that, that causes a lot of sleepless nights.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely a lot of sheer sentiments between different founders. So let's maybe talk about what are advice you will give to other open source founders. You know, maybe earlier than you are, Or are imagining you're back in 2020, 2021, <laughs> getting started again, should I open source or not, right? And especially going after this kind of market where you're you're definitely one of the first open source-based companies for the space. I, was, yeah. I think safe to say that, right? So maybe talk about like the advice you give someone similar position.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we knew going into it, it would be a risky decision in terms of like it may not work. And I think we were willing to accept that level of risk. In fact, we actually gave ourselves like a deadline at some point. I think we were like, we're going to have six months to make this work or we'll go get other jobs. And fortunately for us, it it took off before that. And I think if I were to give myself advice from then, it would be like, there's a certain strategic determination that it requires to be successful because you're going to hear advice, all different kinds of advice. And some of it's wrong, some of it's right. And like, fundamentally, you still need to believe that you're building a product that's adding value to people even in the face of like some pretty bad setbacks and that kind of big determination, I think is, is what's required to be successful. And I, I think I would tell myself like, you know, you got this, just believe in yourself and don't sweat it too much. You'll, you'll figure it out because oftentimes it can seem like the world's ending one day and then like everything's going great the next day. And it's, it can be quite stressful on that. And I think given that the nation, like that's the level of stress you're dealing with, like making sure you,
3: take time to like exercise and things. It's really important. Uh, so. One of the that you have to focus on is that people are surprisingly willing to forgive bugs and flaws in your product, especially if you're early stage and especially if you're open source. So it's really easy to focus on perfection, but like, it's also actually kind of weird. Like if, if you have a bug in your product, someone tells you about it and you fix it, they actually like you more than if there wasn't a bug in the first place. Cause they they're interacting with you and getting actual personal attention from the creators and, yeah, so it's okay to put out stuff that's not perfect and has flaws. Yeah, just get it out there and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, our, our first cloud-based product, we said it was like, we were like, yeah, it's limited by seats. But we didn't build any of that. We just said it was. Um, <laughs> we, there's no point in building it if we don't know if it's going to work. So we kind of launched it and saw how it was being used and then finally went around to building it later.
2: Awesome. I love that. A culture of experimentation for an experimentation company. Yeah. The last thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is being a YC company and an open source company, is there a huge benefit? Because there are so many YC companies that they join for the community, but they also have the opportunity to sell to one another. It's obviously very different if you're an open source company. So what what kind of benefit or what advice would you give other founders who are open source founders thinking about whether or not it makes sense to join something like YC? Yeah,
1: there, there are a lot of YC open source companies. In fact, there's a whole community of us who talk to each other. Um, I don't think being open source or not changes whether or not you're selling to other Yc companies they seem quite willing to adopt us or you know or closed source companies as well so uh, there's no, no limitation there i think Yc one of the things that really helps you do is like extreme focus on on your users and building like the best possible product to, to like a degree I wasn't quite ready for like before it so you, you know and that focus has been really helpful and like like making sure we're extremely close and like building that into the into the culture of our company. So we have like every, you know, all the engineers are in the Slack channel, like talking to users and that's been very helpful. And then I think, you know, their, their advice of like do things that don't scale. It's also been really great. Like the example I, I just mentioned with, you know, the pricing and then like some of the enterprise features, we will, you know, do kind of a really MVP launch and, and then see like what the feedback is and then we'll build it based on their needs. And so that's, that's been very helpful.
3: Beyond the stuff you can kind of learn from watching their YouTube videos. It, it, it's really like the access to the network and the, yeah, just all the internal knowledge in YC about how to run and scale a company and how to hire the best people. And yeah, just all that insider knowledge that's really hard to get if you don't have that experience growing a venture back startup before.
0: Well, awesome. That's a very valuable lessons and, and we're looking forward to see all the experiments you come out of building experimentation <laughs> software. So thanks a ton. You know, this is super great for our listeners and thanks for coming on our, our podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks.